and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Enrique Guerra Pujol, Associate Instructor of Law in the University of Central Florida College of Business. We will discuss his article, Love and Liberty, a short history of Adam Smith in love. So welcome back to the show, Enrique. Thank you for welcoming me back. This is like uh, this is a highlight of my scholarly life. And before anything else, you know, congratulations on your recent nuptials and your uh, full professorship. It's it's nice to uh, have a uh, such a deserving, both deserving on, on, on you know my as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, thanks so much, Enrique. I really appreciate it. And I just wanted to note that you are among a very uh, select group of people who've appeared on the podcast three times. So there's only, I think, maybe two or three people of whom that's true. So that's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back. And, um, and as always, I absolutely love this paper. I had no idea that any of the things you were talking about in it had ever happened. And I found it absolutely fascinating and really well done. But to kind of set the stage for listeners, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about who Adam Smith was and specifically, who was he as a moral philosopher? You know, that is a great way to begin. And here I'm going to have to shout out Shelley Rogers, who invited me to a, um, a Adam Smith reading group, specifically on Adam Smith. Uh, you know, he's very well known for the uh, wealth, uh, wealth of nations, you know, he's sort of the father of, of uh, modern economics. But in fact, Smith himself considered himself first and foremost a moral philosopher, and in fact, his uh, his uh, longstanding academic post at the University of Glasgow was as professor of moral philosophy. And so, in 1759, he published, and in subsequent years, he would go through six editions. A very popular book in its age, and um, uh, though to some extent uh, forgotten today, there's something of a revival. The theory of moral sentiments, and if I may, I would la- allow you. Uh, I would ask you um, if I could read the very first sentence of the theory of moral sentiments, because it puts Adam Smith in an entirely new light. Please do. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Here it goes. I'm um, quote. How selfish soever man may be supposed, that's our sort of modern economic paradigm, right? The utility maximizer. So, um, comma, there are evidently, and back to Smith here, there are evidently some principles in his nature, uh, maybe today we'd say his or her nature, which interest uh, him or them in the fortune of others and render their happiness, that is to say, the happiness of other people necessary to him or her, though he deserves nothing from it except the pleasure of seeing it. This is what uh, in moral philosophy we refer to as the um, mutual sympathy. And it's a very sophisticated moral theory, this idea that we're not just selfish animals. uh, We also have this sympathetic or altruistic element. And so in this entire book, um, it, it, it's just a, a treatise on, uh, you know, t- in Smith day, he would talk about man or mankind. Today, we talk about persons, you know, but this idea that we do take interest in the fortune of others. Yeah, there's a really profound kind of altruism and sympathy to that. Absolutely. Now, one of the clues, and so um, love and liberty, 
a short history of Adam Smith and love is really, I'm really dialing down on just, you know, um, I know you, um, you know, shared your recent trials and tribulations in, um, you know, in your personal. And I, you know, believe me, I'm happily married now of the uh, last uh, eight, you know, I'm going on nine years. Um, uh, but I've had trials and tribulations and my, so I was just fascinated about Adam Smith as a, as sort of a man, a person. And there's really interesting, there's a passage in the, um, uh, in the theory of moral sentiments where he says, he gives an example of, for example, physical pain. Um, and you see this like in a horror movie, for example, in uh, contemporary times, you know, like you see, you know, you know, it's a Hollywood production, you know, it's the chainsaw is not real, you know, but, you know, I, I, like for me, I will recoil, right? I, I can't even, you know, I have to uh, really not eat anything before I see a horror movie. And so Smith says, and I, I, I quote, um, I, at one point in the theory of moral sentiments, he says, the loss of a leg may generally be regarded as a more real calamity than the loss of a mistress. It would be a ridiculous tragedy, however, of which the catastrophe was to turn upon a loss of that kind. A misfortune of the other kind, how frivolous soever it may appear to be, has given occasion to many a fine one. Now, I will say this is not really that, you know, uh, user friendly, but I think what he's saying, right, he's trying to compare physical pain, where if we see somebody suffering physical pain, even let's say like in today, right, in a, in a, in a Hollywood production, right, we kind of uh, uh, we imagine ourselves what that might be, why, and that's why we get scared. But then he's comparing that to, let's say, uh, the end of a love affair, the loss of a mistress, to use the old, early, you know, modern uh, language. And um, he's saying, you know, and yet, you know, the, the loss of a mistress, though it's not, you know, much less significant than physical pain, probably we we suffer greater. And this led me to some clues, uh, or, you know, this I thought this as a clue. When Smith is talking about lost mistresses, you know, to use his own language, or disappointments in love, um, you know, could he be referring to himself? Well, so what do we know, if anything, about Adam Smith's personal life and specifically about his his love life? Well, what's fascinating here is that Adam Smith, as many public intellectuals of his day and age, requested that all of his private papers and correspondence be destroyed. In fact, I've later figured out there's only maybe a hundred plus letters that w w still survive. Um, and um, and so biographers, oftentimes, either they don't discuss the possibility of a love life or they will acknowledge it in passing um, simply to discount it, uh, discount it as unfounded rumors or mere gossip, etc. What I decided to do, though, I said this is something I just I've just been personally fascinated uh, by. And so I decided, OK, let's actually reconstruct this. I'm not going to take the biographer's word for it. And it turns out and this is really what the, the bulk of the paper is about. There are four real powerful pieces of primary evidence. It's not secondary evidence, uh, you know, primary evidence that established, although not a clear picture, I think if we apply a more likely than not or preponderance standard, I think we can say that Adam Smith was all too human. He fell in love at least once, perhaps twice uh, in his life. So, so maybe you could talk about those two different circumstances or those two different events, because it seems like one was relatively early in his life and the other was relatively late. 
Right. And, you know, let me um, here. I'll tell you what, let's do this. Let's talk about the four pieces of proof or the four pieces of evidence, the primary sources. One goes all the way back to 1793 when Professor Dugald Stewart, who happened to be a close friend of um, of, uh, Adam Smith, in fact, held the uh, at that time held the, uh, you know, was the successor of the uh, professor of moral philosophy at the University of Glasgow. He read he wrote a short the life and writings of Adam Smith. And um, this was uh, eventually to be published, but he read it out first at the Royal Society of Edinburgh in uh, January of 19, uh, 17, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, 1793. And in there, buried in a footnote, note K that scholars often cite, um, there's a reference to a sort of first love. And, and I have to say, it's such a beautiful um, and intriguing uh, reference that I'll go ahead and just repeat it. In, and I'm quoting now from Professor Stewart, uh, uh, Stewart's biography of Smith. Remember, uh, this is, this is 1793. Adam Smith dies in 1790. Professor Stewart personally knew Adam Smith. Quote, in the early part of Mr. Smith's life, it is well known to his friends that he was for several years attached to a young lady of great beauty and accomplishment. How far his addresses were favorably received? or what the circumstances which were prevented their union, I have not been able to learn. In other words, Wright Smith was very discreet about his private life. But, and I continue the quote, but I believe it is pretty certain that after this disappointment, he laid aside all thoughts of marriage. Um, And then what's really intriguing as I was preparing for this podcast is um, the second part of this footnote Um. The lady to whom I allude died also unmarried. She survived Mr. Smith for a considerable number of years and was alive long after the publication of the first edition of this memoir. And here I want to pause. The first edition of this memoir is 1794 in print, read out loud in 1793. What Professor Stewart is telling us is that even after he p- published this initial short memoir or biography of Adam Smith, he must have come in contact with this. Often, often another biographer refers to her as the maid of Fife, you know, where uh, Smith was originally from. Now, that is sort of a reference to a first relationship. There is a second relationship potentially um, during Adam Smith's travel in France. Um, but before we talk about the second possible relationship, uh, I do want to say something about early modern Scotland. And I want to say something about um, a little bit more about this first relationship. And um, one of the things that I, uh, as I was doing researching this, and this is, I think, is a blind spot in the Adam Smith literature, which is very voluminous. But one of the blind spots in the Adam Smith literature is filled by um, this wonderful book, uh, Girls in Trouble, by Leah Lenneman and Rose Mitchison. It's a great book about the Scottish church, Presbyterian church in the 18th century. And um, and as I write in the paper, if I may just uh, self-quote, um, I say the most regulated aspect of Scottish life by far in Adam Smith's time was not the economy, you know, as regulated as it was, right? The guilds and all the things that we know about. It was actually people's sex lives. During Adam Smith's lifetime, for example, every parish in Scotland had its own ecclesiastical or church court. These parish courts, also known as Kirk Sessions, um, had jurisdiction over every parish member's private and public conduct. 
including over all matters of sexual morality. So in part of the paper, I really delve into this aspect of Scottish life. And this is why I titled my paper Love and Liberty. I'm wondering to some extent, you know, um, it, 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 does Adam Smith have any resentment, you know, to this? And, and I'll tell you, this is so now, – now, I don't want to paint a false picture of uh, early modern Scotland. In, in many ways, there was a lot – up until 1780, that, that era, there was a lot of buy-in and Calvinist theology. Um, you know, but people were reporting on each other. If people were shacking up or seen together – um, you know, if they were unmarried, they would be reported to the Kirk session, which was the, the, the initial, if you will, court of first instance and church elders, you know, they would summon, uh, both. And I'll tell you, this was, a, a what's fascinating with the research of Lenneman and Mitchison show is that, is that, you know, we often talk about a double standard where, where girls or women would be subjected to harassment and not, you know, the guys, but I'm telling you, the Presbyterian Church was very in Scotland. You know, this early modern period was very strict about everybody. You know, they would call in the man as well. You know, um, and so it, it's fascinating. I have to really strongly recommend the book of Girls in Trouble. Another really wonderful source here is um, a. 1978 dissertation by one George Hardy, um, which talks also about um, sort of Scottish norms that back in during Smith's lifetime, you really needed the consent of your parents, you know, and um, in order to get married. And this was all the more true if your uh, family had, you know, valuable, uh, had, had an estate, had lands. Um, and in Smith's case, you know, I did all the research, you know, sort of piecing it all together. It turns out that his mother, Margaret Douglas, uh, came from a very powerful, influential landowning family. And his father, also named Adam Smith, named Adam Smith Sr., um, was the uh, a position that Smith himself would hold later in life, the commissioner of customs um, in Edinburgh of, of, of all of Scotland. And, you know, was... Uh, had a very uh, a, a very respectable salary, and so um, I although although his uh, um, Doctor Smith's daughter I'm uh, sorry his father died uh, when he was about to be born, um, you know I I, I, I hypothesize this is speculation on my part that if there was an early attachment in um, in Fife and Kirkcaldy that perhaps the mother objected to the union for reasons we don't know. Mm. Um, uh, now, the second relationship that you alluded to would occur during Smith's travels in France. And this is a second blind spot in the Adam Smith literature. Um, even myself, you know, I never really gave that much attention. I mean, we, uh, those of us who study Smith know that he did spend some time in France, including Paris, was in all the fashionable salons. That's where he met the, uh, you know, the, uh, these, uh, these great French, uh, today we'd call them economists, um, political economists. And so started formulating his ideas of free trade. But what's often not known is that Smith spent considerable, also considerable time in the south of France and in Toulouse specifically and traveled all throughout the region of the south of France. This is the part of the paper that I'm still expanding and working on. And among his contacts that when he first went to the south of France, he didn't have that many contacts, but he did meet a fellow Scotsman, the Abbe Colbert of Castle Hill, who was a Scot. Um, fascinating character. He ended up in France uh, for reasons that have to do with Scottish politics. Long story short, he converts to Catholicism, was a star student, um, is in Toulouse. He becomes really Adam Smith's confidant. And 
in fact, his closest friends. And this is the other piece of evidence that I talk about in the paper of the four pieces of evidence is this last piece of evidence is a piece of private correspondence addressed directly to Adam Smith. And just based on the of jocular uh, and familiar tone that's used in the letter. Um, it, it's the inference seems to be that they they were you know quite friendly, and um, and there what's fascinating is a letter dated um, 18 September 1766 by the uh, Abbe Colbert uh, to Adam Smith, and he did make a reference. You know, I have, basically by this time Smith is in Paris. And Colbert says, hey, how are you doing there? I'll, I'll paraphrase the letter. You know, how are you doing there? Um, you know, I, I've heard about, you know, uh, the, the impression you've made on the ladies, including, you know, this one lady, a so-called Mrs. Nicole. Um, does she does she have your heart the same way that the, uh, you know, the maid of Fife, the uh, your first love of uh, your first love of your life? In other words. Um, and you have to understand that not only were they together in Toulouse, you know, they also traveled together to Bordeaux for several weeks at a time, Montpellier, all these places in France. So, uh, you know, and back then, it's not just you take a bullet train or you take a car ride, you know, you're in a carriage, you know, you're talking for hours on end. So I consider that I consider Colbert a very credible source, you know, confirming this possibility of a, you know, the first relationship that the Professor Stewart talks about, right, this early love that I conjecture, and it's just a conjecture, I don't have evidence, but that maybe it perhaps the mother objected to. Um, and then the second relationship of a, of a Miss or Mrs. Nicole. Um, and there we don't know very much, uh, unfortunately, as well. That's what I'm working on right now. Well, so I mean, I wonder whether you think that these experiences informed Adam Smith's perspective in the theory of moral sentiments in any way. I mean, the way you describe them, I almost picture like a Jacques Demy musical of like a tragic, tragic failed love or something like that. Well, this is sort of the other side of Adam Smith that I was not also aware of. And there's a side that was really, to the extent his travels in France have been um, documented and discussed, for example, in the Ian Simpson uh, Ross's biography, his 1995 biography um, of the life of Adam Smith um, during his travels in the south of France and later in Paris. Um, Smith, actually, it turns out, he was very much an opera goer. He loved drama and, and plays and concerts. And, you know, Scotland of his day, you know, because of the Presbyterian church, you know, a lot of these things weren't allowed. So when he was in France, I have to imagine he, you know, he was only in his early 40s. I have to imagine he cut loose, you know, and he and, and in fact, all the evidence shows, you know, from the correspondent, he attended all of these plays and dramas and operas. So he was having a great time. Um, and yes, you know, I have to think that Adam Smith had a sentimental side and I have to, and I have to think now I will say, I'll be the first to say, this is all conjecture on my part. Right. But I have to say, you know, um, when we look at, um, also the wealth of nations, you know, let's not leave out the wealth of nations. There's a lot, especially in book five of the wealth of nations, when he's talking about the role of the state. And this is sort of another note, you know, but let's put aside all the love affairs or, you know, um, uh, potential love affairs he may have had. One of the unknown, uh, one of the less commented aspects of Wealth of Nations is Book Five, where he talks about the role of the state. The state is necessary um, to some extent 
in order to have markets, you have to have infrastructure. And a lot of the examples that he actually discusses in book five of the Wealth of Nations or part five of the Wealth of Nations come from his experiences in France. And so while I think it was a very discreet uh, person, I didn't discuss, uh, except for those few passages in, in the theory of moral sentiments, I have to believe that sort of the environment in Scotland compared and contrast with the environment in France, you know, whether he fell in love or not, have to have informed his worldview. There's also another, a third blind spot I'd like to mention. So I've talked about two possible blind spots in the uh, literature. One is, you know, this Abbe Colbert, you know, his closest friend and confidant in France. That's why I give so much weight to his September 1766 letter. The other blind spot being the, you know, What's going on in Scotland with the Kirk sessions, you know, and just how closely everybody's being monitored in terms of their moral conduct, you know, and it's not just sex, you know, it's also, you know, drunkenness and lewdness and blasphemy, all kinds of things. But there's a third blind spot, and this is the affair du Chevalier de la Barre. And so when, uh, you know, students of Adam Smith are very familiar with a case, the case of John, Jean Calas in Toulouse, he was a Protestant who was unjustly accused of murder. And in fact, eventually the state, you know, the uh, Parliament, the the French judicial system in Toulouse had to, after he was already um, executed, um, had to to rescind the uh, conviction and pay reparations to his widow. But that, and that was a very famous case involving a Protestant sort of unjustly accused by the Catholic, you know, uh, at this time, France as a Catholic state. But I haven't seen in the literature, um, there's a second case, in fact, the last case involving religious intolerance, much more nuanced and complex case, because it involved a young orphan who was actually Catholic, but accused of blasphemy, the Chevalier of the Knight of De La Barre. And um, and I tell you, this case actually is very important in in today in modern Fran- France's psyche. There is, in fact, in Montmartre, in the uh, Church of the Sacred Heart, a monument erected in his honor. And um, the place, the, the locale of um, Adam Smith's second love affair, if it did, in, in fact, occur, Abbeville, uh, France, north uh, northwest of Paris, um, was the actual location of the uh, Chevalier de la Barre's case, um, where he was also unjustly accused. And in spite of him being a Catholic, but he was accused of uh, blasphemy. And um, what's fascinating about about this case is that you know it went uh, it was appealed to the Parliament or the judicial court in Paris, all during the time while Smith is in Paris and in Abbeville where, you know, multiple sources are referring to a possible second love, uh, this Miss Nicole. And I will, it's, 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 I I have to believe that this case, um, what cinched it, there was never any direct evidence of his involvement. What happened here is uh, there was never any evidence. There was a a cross that was mutilated on a bridge. Uh, There was never any evidence that he committed uh, this particular act of vandalism against a, a holy symbol. But during the investigation of the young Chevalier, the young knight, um, pornographic books were discovered in his bedroom. And so, um, you know, I will tell you, Voltaire himself, a close, a, 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 a associate, not a close friend, but someone who Adam Smith admired. In fact, Adam Smith went out of his way to Geneva on his way to Paris to meet Voltaire. Voltaire contemporaneously, in 1776, wrote a defense of this case. So I have to imagine Adam Smith was aware of what was going on. 
um, with the uh, Chevalier of, the case, uh, of this case. And this may have also, you know, all of these events may have conspired in such a way to predispose Adam Smith to a love of liberty. I mean, do you think that there was some tension in Adam Smith's, like his own personal feelings and sentiments and obligations he may have felt professionally to behave in a certain way in order to maintain his position? Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of the things that's fascinating about Adam Smith. I think, by the way, intellectually, let me say this, I think there's no um, contradiction or tension in, in Adam Smith's works. I just think that us moderns are interpreting him wrong. I think we have to study Adam Smith in the light of of theory of moral sentiments, of his moral theories. But in terms of Adam Smith, the man, the person, I really do believe there's a tension. This is why this is why I conjecture in my paper that maybe there may have been a you know he had a lifelong attachment to his mother, lived in her household his entire life. This is what leads me to believe if he really did fall in love early on, and you have to understand Adam Smith was not a nobody, you know. People who really weren't able to get married back in this time in early modern Scotland is because they had no prospects. You know, they were still apprentices or uh, servants in a household. But this was not Adam Smith. You know, he went to the University of Glasgow at a young age. He was sent off to Ox- uh, Oxford on a Snell um, uh, uh, exhibition and then, you know, um, established himself in Edinburgh with a series of public lectures, which led to his appointment in Glasgow. So why didn't he get married? Right. This is a guy who has prospects. And yet, you know, but at the same time, he lived in in his mother's household until her death in 1784. And so I have to, I I suspect, although we don't have as of yet the evidence um, that, uh, you know, uh, maybe the mother vetoed a potential relationship. I have to feel that his devotion and love of his mother, that in other words, Adam Smith was not just about individualism, it's also about family. I'll say also, there's a possibility of a lost travel diary um, the custom was when someone was on a grand tour uh, to keep a travel diary. And um, one, um, one Smith scholar, William R. Scott, um, uh, as he was preparing a presidential address for the uh, you know, British Economic Society in 1940, as he was passing away, he had um, left some notes where he said, look, I uh, went to a bookshop in Edinburgh. And yes, there is apparently a travel diary associated with Adam Smith's travels to to, uh, uh, to France. And um, uh, we don't know the identity of who bought it. We it, we think it's some, from someone overseas, a British dominion, maybe from the United States. But if we could find that diary, we could really solve a lot of these mysteries. Yeah. Has, have there been any clues or any sense of what possibly could have happened to that diary? Because that's just so intriguing. Yes, absolutely. Um, you, you know, I'm wondering myself um, if it is, it, it's, 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 it, you know, well, I'll tell you what my speculation is. We really don't have any concrete information. And, 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 and uh, sadly, you know, Professor Scott uh, died as he, as he was preparing this presidential address. And all we have is an appendix where he discusses that he went up to Edinburgh to the bookshop of Mr. Orr on Georgia Street. Um, but I speculate that perhaps this was maybe not Adam Smith's tribe, travel diary, but when he was in France, he was actually appointed a, a tutor or the ch- uh, charge of a future duke, the Duke of Buklich. A uh, Actually, it comes from um, a, a noble line, both from 
Scotland, and also um, from, uh, I think, France, King Henry II. Um, and so um, he actually uh, resigned his position at the University of Glasgow in order to um, accept this tutoring job uh, uh, and this travel to France. Now, I have to tell you, to my modern sensibility, it sounds crazy, right? Who would give up their job? I mean, I want to go to France as well. But, you know, but it turns out that this was a very – Henry Scott is his uh, uh, Christian name. turns out he was you know, a very important position. His father-in-law, who appointed uh, or offered this position to Adam Smith – um, was at the time, you know, it rose to the uh, up to the level of the chancery of uh, chancellor of the exchequer, um, and so um, uh, and really it was a it really just tripled Adam Smith's salary, gave him a guaranteed pension for the rest of his life, and I'm, I'm wondering if the travel diary may have been the pupils, you know, um, and maybe uh, maybe the travel diary included a lot of the lessons and a lot of the. Uh, 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 you know, meetings that they were trying to uh, schedule while they were in the south of France and in Paris, the salons, the people they met. But I have to believe that if it's a if it's an intimate document like that, there has to be some some information. But alas, we have no idea where the whereabouts. I, I have to tell you, this is now my this has now become my life's mission. You know, to track down this diary, and I think this podcast will be the first step in. Um, because you never know; it's six degrees of separation. Someone will listen to this podcast who may have heard of this story, or if not, may uh, provide some clues and some leads. God willing. Well, Enrique, in closing, I wonder if you could reflect briefly on what you think kind of contemplating Adam Smith as a person with his own romantic sentiments can do to inform our understanding of Adam Smith, the philosopher, both of moral sentiments and maybe even of um, economics? This is probably the best question I've ever been asked in my lifetime, and I've been teaching since 1998. And I have to say that, you know, um, I, 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 I will tell you, I'll share a personal anecdote. I was a Spanish literature major in college. And I remember, I remember taking a course in the Quixote by the great Miguel de Cervantes, you know, who, by the way, led a fascinating life. Um, and um, at one time, for example, he was a, a prisoner of pirates on the Barbary Coast and just uh, wrote the first modern novel. Um, and I remember how we would study, you know, the, uh, the, the, the times of the sort of the political history of the times of Miguel de Cervantes to understand the context of the Quixote. Right. And I think what I want to do here is sort of do the reverse, understand sort of the trials and tribulations of the of the author, you know, or in this case, the intellectual, the thinker, the moral philosopher and the, you know, proto-political economist to understand their ideas. And I think, um, I think by humanizing Adam Smith, you know, and it's not just about saying that he was in love, but that, that his loves were frustrated, you know, either, uh, if my speculations are correct, because maybe, uh, there was opposition on the maternal side or because of his own rectitude and discretion, you know, as a, tutor of a, you know, future, uh, uh, Duke. Um, I have to, I, I, you know, I, I just give, uh, uh, Dr. Smith all the more credit for persevering and leaving his legacy in spite of these personal setbacks. I think this is like in these pandemic times, right. And these, um, difficult things we're suffering. I think like 
Adam Smith and talk to us today. Well, Enrique, as always, thank you so much. It has been a great pleasure talking to you. I absolutely adore the paper and I can't wait to read the final version and I hope listeners will check it out. Uh, thank you, Brian. And have just, uh, you know, um, I hope to see you soon. Likewise. Barbara's grew a green briar.